Most people do their estate plan because they want to make sure their estate is handled the way they want. We're living longer and longer. And as we age, we don't necessarily maintain the same mental abilities or physical abilities. And at some point in time, while we're here alive, we may not be able to manage our finances or manage our medical decisions. So estate planning is important with regard to that because you can nominate people to help you out with your finances and with your medical decisions. Hello, and welcome to the Age Stage podcast, where it is our mission to equip you with the resources to navigate life's challenges, empower you to make critical choices with the ones you love as they age, and enrich your life with a renewed sense of self-worth, self-confidence, and peace of mind. I'm your host, Dr. Cheryl Matthew. I am excited to bring you this episode of Age Sage, Elder Law Answers with Christine Brown. As an elder law and estate planning attorney for over 25 years, and the author of the book, Seven Steps to Handling Your Loved One's Estate, she brings a wealth of knowledge and important information that can guide you as you plan and prepare for your most important elder care needs. Christine clearly explains the ins and outs of the legal system as it relates to estate planning, Medi-Cal, Medicaid, and covering the cost of long-term care. The information she shares in this podcast can help you protect your family and your assets. I'm really happy you're joining us. I believe you'll find this time well spent. We'll get rolling right after a word from one of our sponsors. Every passage in life has its ups and downs, decisions and transitions, a beginning and an end. I invite you to navigate life's journey like an age sage, fully living, learning, and loving. As we care for our aging loved ones, we also need to make time to care for ourselves. So this is our safe space to share challenges, wisdom, and joy along life's adventure. I'm your guide, Dr. Cheryl Matthew, and this is Age Sage. I really, really am excited about our guest today, Christine Brown. She is an elder law attorney. Christine received her bachelor's degree from UC Santa Barbara and is a graduate of the University of the Pacific McGeorge School of Law. She was formerly a partner in a law firm, and in January of 2002, she opened her own law firm, which concentrates solely in the area of elder law. Her special emphasis is on Medi-Cal long-term care planning and the concerns of the elderly, while also applying her extensive experience in estate planning, trust administration, probate, and conservatorships. And Christine is a member of the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys. Welcome, Christine. Thank you for having me. You know, Christine and I have known each other for many years, probably 20 years, I think. That's what I would think. I would think we first met. And so we've been both working in the field of aging and elder care and her with elder law, me and geriatric care management. But we've uh, crossed paths a lot. I get your newsletter every week or month or whenever it comes out um, with lots of tips. And I know you've helped a a lot of elders and you have a lot of expertise in this field, which can often be very complex. And I know people call me and they have questions about these, these areas that you work with. And I'm, I'm really excited about giving that people some really concrete, simple information and also takeaways from today that they can, that they can use in their life and uh, or when a situation comes up that they might need it. So welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Happy to be here. So one question, one just lighthearted question I ask all my guests uh, before we get started is what is your favorite place to vacation? Oh, wow. I like to vacation at the beach so, or someplace where I can kind of relax, unplug, and just enjoy my family and friends. So probably Hawaii would probably be my favorite place to vacation. Hawaii, yeah. It's funny, living in the South Bay, South Southern California, sometimes I'll go to the beach and go, people come here from around the world to vacation, and I'm, I'm looking to go to Hawaii to get out of here. <laughs> right. It's kind of funny. Different beach. <laughs> different, it's a different beach. Yeah. It is a different beach. So, Christine, will you tell me a little bit about your practice and what services you offer Uh, What makes you you unique? So as you mentioned at the beginning, my practice is solely in the area of elder law. 
And what elder law is, just a brief definition, is that elder law deals with issues that people and families face when a loved one becomes incapacitated. So we start with estate planning. Most people do their estate plan because they want to make sure their estate is handled the way they want, that they want a particular person in charge after they die. But what a lot of people realize, and you probably realize this more than anyone else, we're living longer and longer. And as we age, we don't necessarily maintain the same mental abilities or physical abilities. And at some point in time, while we're here alive, we may not be able to manage our finances or manage our medical decisions. So estate planning is important with regard to that because you can nominate people to help you out with your finances and with your medical decisions. So obviously, elder law deals with some estate planning, but it also deals with the event or in the event someone doesn't do any sort of planning. So let's say you have a loved one that suffers from dementia, they're no longer remembering to pay their bills, or perhaps they pay their bills three or four times, or they're not able to make medical decisions for themselves. So families come to me and say, you know, how can we help out our mom? Because she can't manage her finances, she can't make medical decisions. So we talk about conservatorships, which is a court process by which you go to court and you ask the court that you or another family member or a friend or even a private professional fiduciary is appointed as the conservator, which means that they're in charge of making financial decisions, paying the bills, managing assets, as well as making medical decisions, placement decisions as the conservator. The person that's being supervised or managed is called the conservatee. Then um, along the same lines, families are then concerned about the cost of care. Can they afford to keep their loved one at home? How are they going to afford the caregivers? Or will their loved one move into assisted living? Can they afford that? And then um, we also deal with um, Medi-Cal planning. So when somebody is faced with going into a skilled nursing facility and they're not able to pay the seven, eight, nine, ten thousand $10,000 bill every month, they're worried, is there a public benefits program out there, such as Medi-Cal? Will it pay for my mom or dad's care in the skilled nursing facility? So we help guide them um, and have them do some planning so that at some point in time, or even immediately, their loved one may be eligible for Medi-Cal benefits. And then the other aspect of elder law, which a lot of people don't think about, is there's also special needs planning. So we're not always focused on the older person needing planning, but we also help families with children that are developmentally disabled so that we um, put estate planning documents into place so that their child, as they age, will be able to receive public benefits and also receive an inheritance. And that inheritance will not adversely affect their SSI benefits or their Medi-Cal benefits. You know, people might not realize it, but that is such a niche in law. It really makes a difference to see somebody that knows about how to do those things. Because there are certain things that people can do to plan that can really impact the level of care they're able to afford for the rest of their life. Right. And um, I had a friend call me recently, and her husband was really ill. And there were some things going on. And I, I said, you know, it would be good to contact an elder law attorney so you could plan around these things. And then just she never knew about what an elder law attorney was. Mm -hmm. So just that one call, just that one recommendation, and I talked to her recently, as well as another friend who she told, and she's like, that, it changed my life, that the documents that we got in place now, there's a, a sense of peace, peace of mind, but also financially, they're going to be okay. Right. So this information is very helpful. So let's just get a little terminology clear, because sometimes it can be confusing. So there's Medicare, and then there's Medicaid mm -hmm. in California called Medi-Cal. Right. Same thing. So can you... Tell us about the difference between Medicare and Medicaid or Medi-Cal. 
So Medicare is a program which taxpayers pay into. So you notice on your pay stub, there's usually a deduction for Medicare for Social Security. Well, you've paid into the Medicare program. Um, When you receive Medicare benefits, there's different parts, Part A, Part B, and so on, and they pay for different services. Medicare will usually pay for doctor's visits, hospitalizations. Probably the most common misconception is that Medicare is going to be paying for your skilled nursing care. I can't tell you how many people come to me and say, well, I understand that my husband's Medicare is going to pay for all of his skilled nursing expenses. Well, it pays for a portion. There's a 100-day period which Medicare will pay for your skilled nursing care. They don't even pay 100% during those 100 days. When those 100 days are up, then the um, patient has three options. Either they private pay. If they've had the the forethought of purchasing a long-term care insurance policy, that will pay for the care in the skilled nursing facility. Or what happens to most people is that they will look into the Medi-Cal program to see whether or not they're eligible for that to pay for the skilled nursing care. Now, if you could tell us what this thing is we hear about called Medicaid or Medi-Cal, I'm going to use I'm going to use the word Medi-Cal because we're in California. And that's what it's called. But just for our listeners, just know Medicaid and Medi-Cal are the same thing. So people hear about Medi-Cal planning, and sometimes I've even seen commercials for attorneys saying, oh, we're going to help you with Medi-Cal planning, and we will get your loved one's care, like assisted living, paid for for the rest of their life. There's some myths out there that if you just do Medi-Cal planning, then it'll pay for everything. So I would love for you to clarify for our listeners, what is Medi-Cal planning? What does that entail? How does it help people? Who's it for? Those kind of things. Okay, so... Medi-Cal pays for skilled nursing care only. There's a couple of waiver programs out in L.A. County that pay for assisted living, board and care. But those facilities are few and far between. And there's usually a hellacious waiting list to be eligible for a room in those particular facilities. So my clients tend to be husband and wife. One of them has been um, diagnosed with a very serious illness. It could be dementia. It could be Parkinson's. And the well spouse, the one who's taking care of the ill spouse, has come to the point where they can't take care of their loved one at home anymore. I mean, for their own mental and physical health, it's just not possible. And if you've been a caregiver, you know it's hard, especially if you've been a caregiver for somebody with dementia, it's extremely hard because they will get up in the middle of the night, they won't know where they are, so there the caregiver has to get up and their health is affected. And it's a really, really traumatic decision for the spouse to have to make to place their loved one in a skilled nursing facility. So when that time comes, the spouse will come to me and say, I can't afford $10,000 a month. You know, my husband has Social Security and a pension, and that's $3,000. I have a Social Security of $500 a month because I didn't work outside the house very long before we had kids, so we don't have a lot of money. And I'm afraid that if we tap into our nest egg, by the time my husband passes away, I'm not going to have any money to live on. So Medi-Cal long-term care planning is really I don't want to be flippant, but it's a numbers game. It depends on what assets you have and the value of the assets. So what happens when a husband and wife apply for Medi-Cal long-term care, they have to disclose all of their assets to the Medi-Cal department, which means husband and wife's community property, husband's separate property, and wife's separate property. And then Medi-Cal will look at the assets and put them into two categories. There are non-exempt assets and there are exempt assets. So exempt assets have no effect on whether you're eligible for Medi-Cal long-term care. So the largest and probably most valuable exempt asset that most Californians own is their home. And right now, Here in California, there's no maximum value on how much your house can be worth in order to be eligible for Medi-Cal. 
In other states, there's a value cap, but here in California, we don't have it yet. So your house is exempt. You can have one car. Any burial plots that you have are exempt. Household furniture and furnishings. Your IRAs are exempt. Um, Your retirement plans are exempt as long as you're taking the required minimum distribution. And then your exempt assets, those have a a maximum cap. And in 2019, if you're a married couple, your non-exempt assets cannot exceed $123,600. If you're a single person, your non-exempt assets cannot exceed $2,000. So obviously there's a little bit more room for a married couple to become eligible for Medi-Cal as opposed to a single person that's applying. Um, An example that I give my clients, well, before I give my, my clients the example, I always tell them every person's situation is different. Just because your neighbor or your best friend applied for Medi-Cal and they didn't get it doesn't mean you won't be eligible for Medi-Cal. Spend the time, talk to an elder law attorney and talk to them about your specific situation and they'll be able to help you determine whether or not you're eligible or give you tips on what you need to do to become eligible. So the example I like to give is Mr. and Mrs. Jones live on the same street. They live in the exact same house, same floor plan, same size, yet one couple is eligible for Medi-Cal and the other one is not. And their assets are worth exactly the same amount of money. So the question is, well, why is one couple eligible for Medi-Cal and the other isn't? Well, let's say Mr. and Mrs. Jones are eligible for Medi-Cal long-term care. They have their house which is an exempt asset, and their $500,000 IRA is also an exempt asset, so they're eligible for Medi-Cal because in my scenario, there's no non-exempt assets. If you go to Mr. Smith or Mrs. Smith, they have their house, which is an exempt asset, but then their $500,000 is just in a savings account. It's not in a retirement plan. It's just cash in a CD or cash in a money market account. They're ineligible for Medi-Cal under this scenario. And that's the other thing is there's a lot of bad advice out there regarding Medi-Cal or a lot of outdated information. People are relying on old numbers. Mm. That's a great example. I keep hearing about there's a look back period mm-hmm. where Medi-Cal and the state can look back and see, oh, you gave money away to your siblings or your someone. And now you just did that to qualify for Medi-Cal, and then the state can go back and get that. Can you tell us what that means? Yeah. So the look-back period is 30 months in California. Every other state, the look-back period is five years. California will be changing its look-back period at some point in time. We're not quite sure, um, to five years. So I'm just going to use the 30-month example. So when you apply for Medi-Cal, one of the questions they ask you is, have you given away any assets in the last 30 months? And be honest. You're supposed to be honest on the application, but don't try to hide anything because Medi-Cal is going to find out that you gave away assets. So you disclose your gift. So let's say, for example, Let's say the month before you applied for Medi-Cal benefits, you gave your son a $10,000 check just as a gift, a very generous birthday gift, let's say. That gift is not going to disqualify you from getting Medi-Cal benefits. Even though the $10,000 gift may have taken you from ineligible to eligible. Because what Medi-Cal does is they say, okay, tell us everything that you've given away in the last 30 months. They will take that value, let's say it's a $50,000 gift to your best friend. They divide it by a number, which is the average cost of nursing home care in California. And this year it's $9,337. And it's always a very random, (laughs) uneven number. So they take the gift, they divide it by 9,337. So let's say that's approximately, let's say it's five. Okay, 5.6. Well, in California, we don't round up, we round down. So that's five months. 
What that means is that gift could have paid for five months worth of nursing home care had you held on to the money. So you're ineligible for Medi-Cal for five months, not from the date you apply for Medi-Cal. Your ineligibility period runs from the date of the gift. So let's say January 2019, you make the $50,000 gift to your friend. So as long as you don't apply for Medi-Cal for the next five months, so January, February, March, April, May, come June 1st, you could apply for Medi-Cal benefits, even though you've made that $50,000 gift. So what happens Sometimes people will make gifts to different people on different days of the same month so that the periods of ineligibility run concurrently. So let's say, I'm not saying you should do this, but let's say you have three children. They each get $50,000, and we're not going to talk about any gift tax consequences for for this podcast, but they can give away $150,000 and have an ineligibility period of only five months instead of 15 months because the gifts were made to different people on different days of the same month. Gotcha. Okay. So with with regard to the look back period, people do get paranoid about that. But as long as you wait out your period of ineligibility that's caused by the gift and then you apply, you're not going to have any problems. What Medi-Cal doesn't want you to do is let's say you're a single person and you have $52,000 in your bank account you give away $50,000 on June 1st and you show up at the nursing home on June 2nd and want Medi-Cal to pay for it, they will not. You'll have to wait five months before you can apply. What if a person, instead of giving the money away, they created an IRA? Like you said, those are exempt. Mm -hmm. So if they put 500,000 or whatever into an IRA, is that considered giving it away? Is there still a look-back period if you put your money into an IRA? I don't know if you can create such a large IRA with after-tax dollars, but I'll give you another example. Let's say you have a house that has a $200,000 mortgage on it, and coincidentally, you have $202,000 in your bank account and you need Medi-Cal and you're a single person. You could take $200,000 out of your bank account and pay off your mortgage. You can pay off your credit card debt. That's not a problem. You could sell your 1967 VW Bug and buy a 2019 Tesla. That's fine. You can take your non-exempt assets and purchase exempt assets. Sometimes people will prepay for their, their burial. They'll prepay for their cremation. That's totally allowed. That's not a problem. Medi-Cal doesn't have a problem with you spending money on yourself in order to get you eligible for Medi-Cal. They have a problem with you giving away your assets and then expecting to be eligible for Medi-Cal. What about monthly income? So we talked about assets. Is there a limit to what they can make per month to qualify for Medi-Cal? There usually isn't a limit, Um, And I explained that a little bit more. So when you go into a skilled nursing facility, so again, let's say you're a single person and you have Social Security that's $1,500 and you have a pension that's $1,000. So your monthly income is $2,500. That's going to be considered your share of cost. You're allowed to keep $40 as your personal needs allowance. So the and the balance goes to pay for your care and then Medi-Cal picks up the rest. I have had clients who have a very high monthly income. What So what ends up happening is they get the Medi-Cal rate. And let's say the Medi-Cal rate's about 4,500. That's the amount of money that Medi-Cal will pay to the skilled nursing facility for your care. In my scenario, my clients would sometimes pay the whole $4,500 and get the Medi-Cal rate. And some people will say, well, what's the benefit of that? Well, the benefit is that you're you're not paying the private pay rate, which could be upwards of $7,500 or $8,500. You're paying a $4,500 rate, although you're paying it all. You're still getting the reduced rate. So are you saying if a person qualifies for Medi-Cal because of their assets, but their monthly income is high, they can qualify for the Medi-Cal rate and just say if their income is $6,000 a month, Mm -hmm. but the Medi-Cal rate is only $4,500, they can pay the 4500 and they would be able to keep their monthly income above what the Medi-Cal rate is. Yeah. 
but then they have to be careful because if they have, let's say, excess of $1,000 each month, that's going to accumulate to a point where they're going to have more than $2,000 in their bank account and they'll lose their eligibility for Medi-Cal. Good point. Right. <laughs> so with married couples, for example, there's couple things that can be done. So let's say in that same example where the husband has a $2,500 a month income and the wife only has $5,000 a month in income. Well, she's allowed to have a minimum monthly maintenance needs allowance of $3,160. So in that scenario, Medi-Cal wants her to have that much in monthly income so that she can maintain herself outside of a facility and stay at home. So because her monthly income is only $500, she's able to keep all of her husband's monthly income for herself because it's under the $3,160 amount. And husband will pay nothing to the facility and Medi-Cal will pay for all of his care. So she only makes $500 a month. He makes more and he needs the facility. That income would come to her. Correct. Yeah. So... What type of person would come to you to plan for Medicaid? What would be a scenario, some scenarios of people like this would be a good time to come see Christine, our elder law attorney? <laughs> My clients tend to be one of two people. It's either somebody that's recently been diagnosed with dementia or Parkinson's who are of relatively young age. So let's say... 70, 75, where the family thinks that they're going to be living for another 10 years and they're worried about the cost of care. Or it's the person that, or the family, that have been told of the dementia diagnosis or Parkinson's diagnosis. They're dealing with the care, they're dealing with the day-to-day, -day, and now it's gotten to the point where they realize they're either running out of money or they're not able to take care of their loved one at home anymore, and they need to place them. Mm -hmm. And with, with Medi-Cal, as we said a little bit earlier, but the place that Medi-Cal pays for is a nursing home, a mm -hmm. skilled nursing home. And if they have dementia, they've got to be in a, usually somewhere that is secure, a nursing home that's, some people call it locked or secure, mm -hmm. so they won't, if they have a wander risk that they won't wander off. Or sometimes the Medi-Cal waiver program here in L.A. County. I would love if Medi-Cal, the Medi-Cal program would really understand that they could probably pay less money for people to go into an assisted living if they don't really need skilled care. Say if they've got dementia but they don't need a skilled nurse around, that they would pay more for assisted living. Well, hopefully that would happen down the line. I hope so as well, because I've had a handful of clients that had to go into a skilled nursing facility, probably prematurely, because they didn't have the resources or the income to afford an assisted living or even a board and care facility. Well, that's a good point. So I'll tell you. So with my, so for example, um, an organization that I'm working with and happens to be a church, they're saying that a lot of the older church members are coming to the church now saying, you know, I'm retired. I can't afford my apartment anymore or my home. I need low-cost housing. Mm -hmm. And so they're sort of looking to the church like, how are you going to help me, yeah. first of all? And then they look to Medicare, and they go, how are you going to help me? No, they're not, they're not going to help you. The church is probably not going to help you. So then, you know, what are their choices? And it seems like if, say, an assisted living, maybe you can start at, say, $3,000 a month. And, you know, to... You know, it could be $15,000 a month. But say if someone doesn't have 3000 a month and they're older and they don't have any assets, it seems like the only option is to qualify for Medi-Cal and the place that the person would move into would be a skilled care, skilled nursing home. Mm -hmm. Is that accurate or is there some answer that is out there that I haven't thought of? Well, I guess they Give, could get roommates and right, live together right, in right, an apartment. Right. <laughs> right. They could move in with family. Right. They could get a roommate. But as far as if they want their own place, you know, the senior something. apartments, senior low income mm -hmm. section eight apartments, maybe. I mean, right. going, as you know, 
probably better than I, there has to be an underlining medical reason for somebody to be in a skilled nursing facility. That's, that I, would, yeah, that's the question. Yeah, it, I, yes. I haven't seen a spry 85-year-old go into a skilled nursing facility just because that was the only option available to them. I don't mm-hmm. think the facility would take them. I'm certain the doctor wouldn't write the doctor's note to support that placement. It's hard, you know. I mean, I don't want to say that the elderly will become homeless, but hopefully they can live with family, friends, roommates. It's definitely a hard question, and I don't have the answer for that, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. It's hard, right? Well, that does answer my question. It it recently came up that someone wanted low income. They didn't really have a skilled need. They were older. They didn't have much money. I think they probably were, they think their Social Security was about $1,200 a month, and they needed a place to live. Mm -hmm. You know, the only thing that came to my mind was they didn't really want a roommate. They didn't want to, you know, so they have certain desires, and they didn't want a roommate. And so the only thing I was thinking about was Medi-Cal, but she didn't have a skilled need. So it's really hard. And low-income apartments, at least out here in Southern California, sometimes they'll have a three- to five-year wait to get in. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are assisted living facilities that would accept a person's SSI payment as full payment or their Social Security. But again, those are so few and far between, and the waiting lists are really long and difficult. You know, some people can't wait three or four or five years to get into an assisted living facility. Right. You know, that's the hard part. Can you explain what SSI is and who would be eligible for SSI? So that's supplemental social security income. You must be disabled in order to receive it. It's a very low monthly payment. It's approximately $900 a month. It's usually for people that have never worked during their adult life. They haven't worked the 40 quarters or paid into the 40 quarters of social security. It's a it's a, a way to provide income to disabled persons. And along with the SSI, they will also receive Medi-Cal for their doctor's visits, prescriptions, hospitalizations. So someone could ha- qualify for Medi-Cal, and that's really for medical expenses, mm-hmm. and then SSI would supplement their income to pay for an assisted living. Yes. Or whatever or they're living. housing or wherever yeah. they're living. Most of my clients that get SSI are under the age of 65. So if I have a client that, for example, has a um, child with severe cerebral palsy or autism or maybe even Down syndrome where they're not going to be employable or work enough to earn enough money to support themselves, and they will be eligible for SSI. So they get a little monthly benefit that's supposed to be used to pay only for their food and shelter. And then they get the Medi-Cal to help with any hospitalizations or medications or doctor's visits that they may Mm -hmm. need. I'd love to talk to you about how you work with people with dementia. Dementia is a broad category, right? Alzheimer's, people hear about Alzheimer's a lot. So Mm -hmm. Alzheimer's is a type of dementia. Uh, So we're talking about memory loss or cognitive impairment. Mm -hmm. So when a loved one is diagnosed with dementia, how can you help them and what kind of special needs might they have? With somebody that's been diagnosed with dementia, that doesn't automatically mean that they lack capacity to do anything, right? Because as many people know, dementia is a progress. It progresses. It gets worse. So if I have a client that's been recently diagnosed with dementia, they come to me, we have a conversation, I try and do my own assessment, although I'm not a doctor or a psychiatrist, but I can usually tell the severity of the dementia within maybe five to 10 minutes conversation, because then if they really do have dementia, then they start repeating things, for example. That's not the only telltale time, but that telltale sign, but that's one of them. Um, So with recently diagnosed dementia or mild dementia, we can still do a lot of planning for them. We can help them with estate planning. We can help them with Medi-Cal planning. 
all that sort. As the dementia progresses, then we have to be a little bit more cautious. And sometimes I have clients that come to me with dementia and they want to change their estate plan, which is very, very common. There could be a problem with their capacity. If I have a a serious concern about whether or not they truly understand what they're about to do or what they want their estate planning documents to say, or if I think that maybe a family member may be unduly influencing them to either create an estate plan or to change an estate plan, I usually always require a geropsychiatrist to do a very full evaluation and give me his or her opinion as to whether or not they have testamentary capacity whether they have contractual capacity, and whether they're subject to undue influence. And that's a protection both for myself as well as my client, because when that client passes away and somebody wants to contest the terms of the will or contest the the terms of the trust, we have a report from a geropsychiatrist that was done concurrently with the estate planning documents. It's not looking back at 10 years of medical records and trying to determine whether on, you know, September 30th of 2019, she did or did not have capacity. It helps. It's not going to be 100% defense to a will or trust contest, but it's certainly helpful for everyone involved. I had a personal experience with my grandpa around this topic, and my grandma passed away. A few years later, he had a girlfriend and she lost her mobile home in a hurricane. She moves in. She's in her 90s. He's in his late 70s. And in about a year when she, after she moved in, she started pushing all the family members away, not letting us talk to him. Although he had a dementia diagnosis on his medical chart, it never went further than that. Mm-hmm. You know, his general physician wrote dementia. So, Then she brought him to a lawyer who changed all his documents, took my mother off the, as being a beneficiary, and then changed his, all his financials into her name. And we met with an elder law attorney, they live in Florida, and basically said, you could spend a lot of money doing that. But because, what he told us was, because there wasn't two doctors that had diagnosed him with dementia and not having capacity, that he is still free to make whatever decisions he wants to. Mm-hmm. So we could spend a lot of money fighting it, but it wasn't going to go anywhere. But it was interesting as a professional in the field to feel so helpless about what was happening because I couldn't even go when I when I'd go down there, I couldn't even visit him because I couldn't even get in the house anymore. Mm-hmm. I did call Adult Protective Services um, because when you're if you're worried about someone that they may be unduly influenced, is that what the word right. I'm talking about? If they might be unduly influenced or if there's some elder abuse going on, you can call Adult Protective Services. They'll send someone out there, which they did, but they look at the house was clean. There was food in the refrigerator. According to them, everything was fine. Right. So that was a very, it was a very difficult emotionally. You know, then my mom didn't end up getting the, I guess the, the money really that my grandmother was really hoping that she would get when she passed away first. So in each state, so in Florida, they said that you need two people, to two doctors to say the person doesn't have capacity. In California, is that important for someone, a family member to do? Do they need to see a doctor to say you have a dementia diagnosis or you not don't have capacity? Or is it a, is it a good idea to go through the geropsych? Is there a best practice? I prefer this is just my own preference, that a geropsychiatrist do the evaluation. Just because that's their expertise, they know what to ask, they know what to look for. And then from a lawyer perspective, you use that geropsychiatrist to testify in court at a later date if necessary. Because a lot of general practitioners will be able to diagnose dementia, but like the example you gave, I think for your grandfather, they just write dementia. Well, I could have dementia and it'd be a very mild case of dementia, but somebody else may have a more, the disease may have progressed to the point where they are incompetent and they can't make medical and you know financial legal decisions for themselves. I have told my clients, like if they have a parent that 
um, has been diagnosed with dementia, and they're concerned about the parent making changes to the estate plan, maybe for the benefit of another child or for a new boyfriend or a new girlfriend, to do that evaluation because then you have that record of what the capacity was at that date. So if anything happens in the future, you may prevent any future estate planning documents from taking effect. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. I was As you're talking, I was also picturing as a care manager, usually most of my clients actually have dementia. 90% of my clients over the last 20 years have had some sort of dementia. And one thing I explain to the family or I look for is, are they open to influence with, I guess, you know, it didn't start with my grandpa experience, but it it certainly enhanced it. Um, Say they have a caregiver in the home or some nice neighbor, you know, that's helping out. So I, I try to make sure that the person is protected because they'll really need the finances to take care of themselves. So, you know, I've heard of people changing the title on the house into their name like the caregiver, you know. And the person signing the deed has no idea what they sign. They think they're signing maybe a power of attorney, but in actuality, it's a deed. Right. So there's there's a blatant capacity issue right there. Right. Yeah. So I guess it sounds like the the best way is to get the legal documents in place to protect someone. And then also if there's a child involved or or a loved one involved to get the, to get the, like a geropsychologist to to evaluate so they kind of see the baseline. Mm-hmm. Is that the best way for a family to protect themselves? Yes. But most families don't go to that extreme, especially with the Gerald psych. They think that because the estate planning documents are in place, nothing can happen. But what mm-hmm. they realize in certain circumstances, because most families really do take care of each other, but what some families realize is that the caregiver, the quote, unquote, good neighbor or friend have now taken your loved one to an estate planning attorney, probably out of town, (laughs) to make changes to the estate plan. And you don't realize that the estate planning documents have been changed until something happens. For example, you're trying to evict the caregiver from the home and the caregiver pulls out, oh, no, I have power of attorney (laughs) over your father. I'm allowed to make these decisions or worse yet when the person's passed away. Then a new trust shows up where the, you know, nice neighbor is now the beneficiary of the entire estate. What do you do in that situation? Is there any, like, because they may have a newer trust, a dated, Mm -hmm. you know, after the other original estate plan. So what does a family do? They file a trust contest in the local superior court against the trustee of the new trust. Okay. So it's, it's all in the courts after that. Exactly. Okay. I've got a question and I, I guess I, get, I haven't quite understood it. So I'm so happy to ask you as an expert. When someone has dementia, so a lot of my, my clients have had dementia and it's time to make some decision like, okay, we're going to keep mom at home with caregivers or we're going to move her to a memory care community. But the person with dementia no longer has capacity. So when I, when I think about capacity, I think, does the person understand the consequences of their choices, of their behavior? Mm-hmm. So we think, look, mom really is not able to do that anymore. So the power of attorney, that, or the healthcare power of attorney that she's chosen needs to make the choices. Can the power of attorney just make the choices that they feel would be best for the person? Or do they need a conservatorship, say, with the courts? Like, when is that line... And can someone, it seems like most people that have loved ones with dementia never need to get conservatorship, and but sometimes they do. And mm-hmm. maybe that's only when they have arguments with the family and disagreements. So I'd love some clarity as far as do people with mental incapacity need a conservatorship and what is a conservatorship? I don't think that all people with mental incapacity need a conservatorship, especially if they have advanced healthcare directives durable powers of attorney or a trust in place because that should handle all aspects of their life. But sometimes I've had experiences where when you have somebody with dementia and you want to place them in a secured 
facility, the facility will require you to get a conservatorship because here in California, if you're the conservator of somebody's person, you have to specifically ask for the authority to place into a secured perimeter facility that specializes in the care of dementia, as well as the authority to administer psychotropic medications. So usually with the conservatorship, or usually a conservatorship will arise if somebody has all their estate planning documents in place, only if somebody has been either physically or fiscally um, abusing them, where you need to go in and become the conservator so you can stop that from happening, or when you have a facility that requires one. Because most advanced healthcare directives don't give anyone the authority to place you in a secured facility or a psychiatric facility as well. Some people come to see me and they say, okay, I want to place my mom into a skilled nursing facility and I want to get a conservatorship over her. And then they tell me, well, the reason I want the conservatorship is because my mom doesn't want to go to the skilled nursing facility. I'm going to have to force her to go. So in order to, for me to force her, I need to be her conservator. When somebody asks for a conservatorship for a difficult parent, because that parent doesn't want to go into a skilled nursing facility, even if you have a conservatorship, that doesn't make that difficult person less difficult, right? If that person is kicking and screaming all the way to the skilled nursing facility, just because you have the conservatorship doesn't mean the facility is going to take her. And we have numerous clients that will place a parent in a skilled nursing facility and the parent is difficult and the facility will call them up and say, you need to take her somewhere else and they move to a different facility. It's a little bit like when you have a difficult toddler and you're trying to find the preschool that's the right fit for your toddler. Sometimes you have to go to several skilled nursing facilities in order to find the right fit for your parent. Or maybe even more sadly, that parent then kind of gives up the fight. And maybe the disease progresses to the point where they just don't want to fight anymore and it's easier to place them. So I guess the point of my little bit rambling story is that the conservatorship is not the perfect solution for every situation. Because you're still dealing with a human being who has feelings, even though they may be a little bit skewed because they're not perceiving the situation as it really is, but you can't force them. I mean, like physically force them to place them into a skilled facility if they don't want to go. But God bless the skilled nursing facilities and everybody that works there. They have ways of persuading people to stay and to calm them down and make them feel more comfortable. And usually the older adults will acclimate to their surroundings. So let's talk about sibling rivalry or family dynamics for a minute. Mm -hmm. So I know one time um, when I worked in assisted living, there was three children and their mother had dementia. And two of the children and specifically the one with the, the, that was the agent, the power of attorney, wanted to move her into this memory care community. And the one sister who happened to just be louder in her vocalizing what she wanted, she did not want mom in a secure community. She wanted her somewhere else. So then there were dynamics between them that made it very challenging and especially challenging. So they moved her, they did move her into this uh, memory care community but then the other sister would come and visit and take her out for a while and bring her back and try to talk mom into moving out. So there was this interesting dynamics. And I, I believe they needed to go get a conservatorship. I didn't follow up with them. Mm -hmm. But would that be some a time that the family would need to get a conservatorship over someone? Yeah. In that scenario, you need somebody that the facility can go to, that the facility will only listen to one person or maybe even two people, whatever the situation is. Because in that scenario, the sister or the daughter that took the mom out of the facility and then brought her back is causing her mom more harm than good because I'm sure she riled her up, got her all agitated about being there, talked to her about moving back home and maybe living somewhere else. And I don't think that's in the best interest of the older adult who, again, is not able to perceive the situation as it really is or what's in her best interests. Because you want to be able to say, as the conservator, 
Well, I appreciate the fact you don't want mom in a memory care facility. I'm her conservator. I've been given the authority to look out for her best interests, and I think it's in her best interest to be there. And the conservator has the power or the authority to determine who visits mom. Now, you can't abuse that authority by being mean or petty to your sibling, but you need to be able to say, look, if you're going to come and agitate mom and cause her a lot of mental anguish, whereby causing anguish for the staff who then now have to calm her down and placate her and make sure she's okay, you can't visit mom. Or you can only see her maybe once a week or once a month. I mean, that's the extreme. But you need somebody who's in charge that the doctors can listen to because the doctors may get conflicting reports. You may have one daughter who says, yes, put mom on Aricept. And the other daughter calls and says, no, take her off of Aricept. Put her on Risperidol. Okay, you're all you're going to do is cause problems with everyone that's taking care of your parent to the point where the doctors and the administrators may tell you, go to court. One of you becomes the conservator, and that's the person, mm-hmm. or those are the persons that we're going to listen to. We're not listening to one side versus the other. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. We've covered a lot of ground. That was an amazing education right there. <laughs> I mean, it's going to be so valuable for people to really better understand these situations. I would love to know, because you know we've talked about the details and the amount of money and the names of things. I would love to know what motivates you to do this work? What do you love about it? And you know, what, what motivates you to keep doing this? You've been doing it for a long time. Why do you love it? I love my clients. They are genuinely nice, loving people that just want what's best for their spouse, their parents, their kids. My husband jokes that I'm the social worker attorney because Obviously, I create legal documents, I go to court, but a lot of it is interpersonal relationships and you try and guide them in the way that you think will help them in the long run, right? Nothing makes me happier when I know that I've done something to allow a parent to make decisions for their developmentally disabled child, or I've helped with Medi-Cal planning so that the wife who's at home is not worried about the ongoing costs of her husband's care. Or, you know, families that just want their estate plan in place so in the event they both pass away that their minor kids are going to be taken care of or even their adult kids are going to be taken care of. So Mm -hmm. I enjoy helping people. Usually my clients walk away happy with what we've (laughs) done for them because we're not or I don't do a lot of litigation. So usually because it's non um, or uncontested, we get the goal accomplished. It's not like they, they're worried about somebody stepping in and trying to undo plans or contesting conservatorships or trusts. So it's a little bit different than maybe the average estate planning practice. And there are elder law attorneys that do litigation. I tend not to do that. That's not my I don't say bailiwick, but I just... It's not your preference. No, not at all. Exactly. Yeah, preference is probably yeah, the best word. That makes sense. Uh, we did, I realize that we talked about the idea of planning, but if someone wants to plan, does planning mean creating a trust? Or what would you say, a brief description of, I'm going to Medi-Cal plan? Mm-hmm. What is that? Well, Medi-Cal planning is you go to an elder law attorney you disclose all of your assets to determine whether or not you're eligible or your spouse is eligible for Medi-Cal. And if you're not eligible for Medi-Cal, then the attorney will give you a plan on what to do in order to become eligible for Medi-Cal in the future. And every situation is different. It's really kind of hard to say this plan's going to work for you because it may not. It may work for somebody else. Okay. So there's different different paths for different people. So if they think my loved one's going to be needing it someday, it's best to just see an elder law attorney, then you can talk about all the all the ways that's best for them. Yeah. I mean, it depends on your situation. So if you're a single person, a married couple, regardless of your age, you should probably have some sort of estate plan in place. If you have a spouse or a loved one's been diagnosed with dementia or 
an illness where skilled nursing care is in the future, then it's Medi-Cal planning that you may want to look into. And sometimes the Medi-Cal goes hand in hand with the estate planning. And if you have a disabled child who will be receiving public benefits or is receiving public benefits, then you may want to do special needs planning so that they can have an inheritance and still keep their public benefits either during your lifetime or after you've passed away. And then other things, you know, obviously conservatorships, there's not a lot of planning. Those are more reactionary things depending on what's happened. And same with probate and trust administration. I mean, that's as a result of somebody passing away and you just react and take care of things. So that's not really planning. Mm -hmm. I love the, I love the social work. So I'm a social worker. I love the social work lawyer. I like that. You know, one thing that happens is people tend to wait too long Mm -hmm. to set up a plan. And it seems like some of it's fear, some of it's not knowing what to do or Mm -hmm. who to reach out to. What would you suggest to people that maybe haven't planned yet, haven't set up an estate plan how to motivate people to to do it and why is it important to do it now? Well, it's extremely important to do it now because you're in a position to indicate what your preferences are. So you can articulate who you want in charge. You know, if something happens to you, your next of kin will step in and take care of you or in the event you need a conservatorship or what have you. And let's say your next of kin is your brother, Frank. You don't like your brother, Frank. Your brother, Frank, just filed bankruptcy for the second time, is an alcoholic. Well, that's not the appropriate person to be taking care of your finances and making your medical decisions. Or maybe even a more pleasant example is, let's say you have two kids. Your son is very good with numbers. Your daughter is very good at managing your care. Then you can say, I want my son to manage my finances. I want my daughter to manage my care. I mean, the most important thing is if you plan now, you can articulate your wishes, your desires, and your preferences as to how you're taken care of, how your money's managed, and how ultimately everything will be distributed after you pass away. And then if if people don't plan, they go, I'm just, I'm not doing it, or they ignore it, they Mm -hmm. just do not want to face it. What happens to their stuff? What happens to their assets? Like, what does that picture look like? Well, if you're alive and become incapacitated, then your family has to go to court to become your conservator. That's an expensive process. There's thousands of dollars in filing fees because when you establish a conservatorship, the conservatorship remains in place until the day you die or regain capacity. Rarely does somebody regain capacity. And there are certain things that you have to do. So, for example, in a conservatorship, you have to inventory all of the assets in the conservatorship estate. Well, then you have a probate referee that comes in and he gets 0.1% of all the assets he appraises. And he appraises houses, real property, stocks, bonds, that kind of thing. But then after the first year, you have to do an accounting. That's expensive. There's a filing fee. There's a time to prepare the accounting. And then you do accountings every two years thereafter. Or if you want to sell a piece of real property, you have to get permission to sell that real piece of property. And then once you find a buyer, you have to go back to court and get permission to sell that property to that particular person on these terms. It's extremely expensive. And I don't use this as a motivation to motivate my clients to do estate planning, but I always tell them if you don't plan It is far more expensive to handle your affairs after you're incapacitated or after you pass away when you have no estate planning documents in place. So it's expensive and you may not get what you really want Mm -hmm. because if you don't put it in writing, then someone else is just making decisions for you. Right. Right. And I joke a little bit with my clients. I go, think of it as Murphy's Law. You spend all this money to put your estate planning documents in place, and you don't need them for a long time, Mm -hmm. right? It's kind of like car insurance. You don't want to pay the premium, but you're happy that you have it Mm -hmm. if you need it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think peace of mind is really important and is priceless also. And the other thing is, is when you have your estate planning in place, you can always change it. It's not written in Mm -hmm. stone. 
you know, if something happens and, you know, the guardian you've named for your children no longer lives here or maybe you've had a falling out, then change it. Or if your trustee is moved to Japan and doesn't want to be the trustee of your trust if something happens to you, then change it. Or maybe your children have certain issues that you don't feel comfortable with them getting an inheritance outright. You can break it up that they get an inheritance at particular ages or in particular amounts of money. So you can kind of control the situation because you perceive a problem and you don't want the money to exacerbate Mm -hmm. the problem. Being in this business, doing this service for so many years, what have you learned from it that say you would tell your 21-year-old self based on your experience now? I think plan, make sure you have some sort of estate planning in place. It doesn't mean you need something extremely elaborate. One of the things that I do is when it, when I have clients that have kids that go off to college, okay, college-age children usually have nothing that isn't already their parents, right? Mom and dad put money in the bank account, therefore mom and dad have access in the bank account. But So we do a power of attorney. So in case something happens, like they need to talk to the school because the son's in a coma or whatever, or they need to talk to the administration at the college to maintain their spot, you know, pending their recovery, or, you know, they're over the age of 18. They're allowed to make their own medical decisions, but let's say they're in a horrible car accident. Mom and dad want the peace of mind knowing that they can go to the hospital and make decisions. So we'll do a power of attorney for finances, an advanced healthcare directive, just so that in case something happens. So you can keep it really simple. You can basically create an estate plan that's appropriate for you at your point in life. And you can always change it, expand it as you acquire assets or businesses or a spouse, or maybe if you lose a spouse, you know, gain children and, you know, just make it your own. Mm -hmm. So it sounds to me like you're the main thing you've learned and would share with other people is plan. Just get the documents before you need them. So yeah, because that way way you're able to express your wishes and your preferences, because this Mm -hmm. is not Sunday dinner conversation that Mm -hmm. you have. You don't say, oh, mom, can you pass the bread? And by the way, I want to be cremated. I mean, people just don't talk like that. Mm -hmm. Maybe a couple, but most people don't want to talk about their mortality. It's not that it's taboo. It's just that they just don't want to face it. And I think that's why a lot of people delay in doing their estate planning because they're they just don't want to talk about their spouse or themselves passing away which i totally understand i totally get that but better to put something in place so that people know what you want as opposed to them deciding okay would they want to be on life support or are they going to be okay if i take them off of life support you know what's important to them is it to be on life support until the day the insurance runs out? Or are they the person that says, you know, if I'm on life support and the doctors have determined that this is the way it's going to be, this is not the quality of life I want for myself, and you're giving them the okay to let you go because they know that that's what you would prefer, right? Yeah. Right. It's, it's, a, it's a real gift to those that will be helping you yeah. to let them know what you want. Yeah. Because then they can have some peace of mind when they're, when sometimes they're faced with some big decisions. Right. Yeah. They know I, I wouldn't, I don't know what I would do, but I know dad would want whatever. Cause he wrote it down or we talked about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And that's important because you don't want your family to have guilt about something that they've done for you because they're not a hundred percent certain you were okay with it. Mm-hmm. It is a real gift to the family, having discussions like that and putting it in writing. Yeah. Any final thoughts you want our sages to remember? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not to sound like a bre- broken record, but, you know, just do some sort of planning, even if it's really simple. Even if you have a conversation with somebody about you know, your preferences. While it might not be legally enforced, at least somebody will have an idea of what you want and how you want to be taken care of. Mm-hmm. You know, stuff is has sentimental attachment to a lot of people, but it's still stuff. You know, it's easy enough to divide up assets between family members. It's not so easy to make decisions about somebody's care and their medical treatment. 
those things are important and should be in some sort of writing. I mean, doing advanced healthcare directives, as you know, while I'm not a big proponent of do-it-yourself estate planning, sometimes you just going to the California Medical Association's website and downloading an advanced healthcare directive, at least it's something. <laughs> you know, you have to be a little careful with trusts because if you do it incorrectly, then you've not accomplished anything and sometimes it costs far more to correct the mistake you made. Mm -hmm. So do something. Do something. Do yeah. something <laughs> now. Don't wait. Yeah. Just do it now. It'll be fun. You could make a fun party I'll out of it. I'll try and make it fun for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just been amazing. I, I feel full I, and I've, I've got, you know, I've been in this business a long time, but you've really clarified some things for me that probably seem easy to you, but they are complex and, and um, you know, each situation is obviously a little bit different but you've given us some great tools and, and guidance. And I think that it's going to help a lot of people. So I really appreciate your time. You're very welcome. It was fun. Good. Excellent. Fun. I love having fun. Fun elder care. Actually, we talk about elder care, but it's not just for elders. It's for anybody. I mean, elder law, there's a misconception that all my clients are like over the age of 55, which is not the case. Elder law deals with legal issues that you face as you age or become disabled. So I have clients that are seven years old and I have clients that are 97 mm. years old. It just depends on their situation. One may have a disability, you know, from birth or what have you. And then another person is aging. You can be more than competent in 97, but they all have legal issues that somehow have to be addressed. Mm-hmm. Well, it's really important work that you're doing. So thank you so much for, for helping us understand these topics better. Do you have any specific resources that you think would be fantastic? Yeah. So if you go to southbayelderlaw.com, if you go to the tab under free resources, I have um, an ABC of long-term care and legal planning. It's really a guide for someone who's a caregiver taking care of a loved one. But you can probably use those ABCs for yourself as well. We have a um, estate planning checklist. We have a resource about um, special needs planning. And then a seven-step guide to the probate process just to kind of give you a, an idea of what the probate process is like. And then if you need more help, give Christine a call. She'd be happy to help you out. So thank you so much. You're really very appreciate welcome. It. All right. Take care. Too. Thank you for joining us. At AgeSage, our aim is to equip you with resources to navigate life's challenges, empower you to make critical choices with your aging loved ones, and enrich your life with a renewed sense of self-worth, self-confidence, and peace of mind. I want to take a moment to ask you to rate, review, and recommend this podcast. AgeSage is a new podcast that we created just for you, but no one will know about it if our listeners don't spread the word. So please take a moment now to review it and share it with friends whom you know would benefit from it. If you have a burning question that you would like me to answer on the show, please head over to agesage.co and leave me a voicemail. There you will also find detailed show notes for each episode, and you can download my free ebook, Advocating for Aging Loved Ones. Once again, that's agesage.co, A-G-E-S-A-G-E dot -E C-O. This is Dr. Cheryl Matthew, and I want to thank you again for joining us today. I look forward to sharing this journey with you.